After the dead have been buried. After the injured have been taken to hospital. And the debris made safe. In the aftermath of the building's collapse. What do we do? Very often, we go to court. Courts cannot make bereaved families or those injured whole. They cannot repair damaged structures. But they can go some way to making right some of the harm suffered. Forensic engineers are often called as expert witnesses in these cases. They also play a role in allowing parties to understand their legal and engineering risks and to avoid the need to go to court. In another aspect of the role as building pathologists, they can learn lessons from collapsed buildings. When their findings are commissioned by policymakers or safety regulators, they can be used to make whole sectors of construction and engineering safer. Welcome to Engineering Matters. My name is Tim Sheehan. And I'm Johnny Dowling. In this episode, we're talking to forensic engineer James Cohen. He has worked on complex investigations, often into accidents causing multiple fatalities. And he doesn't think enough is being done to learn from his and other building pathologists' work. Forensic engineering is in many ways a meta-discipline. Design engineers may focus on a particular specialisation. They may be experts on concrete or steel, electrical systems or chemical processing. But to understand why a structure fails, forensic engineers must understand all of these things, as well as the construction methods and contracts that have been used. This isn't something that you can train for. It takes decades of experience over a varied engineering career. And for Jim, the starting point for his career was just boredom. He'd taken a job in 1978 at US bridge building experts, Aman and Whitney. At that time, calculators could only do multiply, division, subtraction. There were no computers of any kind. I was tasked with calculating moments of inertia of built-up girders. Very heavy girders with multiple plates, multiple angles, finding the centroid and the IX and the IY. It was the most boring thing I had ever done. It was on day one. Within a month, I told one of the partners, I can't do this anymore. So they moved me over to what they referred to as their special structures group. And the first thing I did was hang off the Chrysler building in a swing scaffold, pre-safety regulations. It was very exciting. I loved it. There was one other person who was the uh, rigger. And I didn't even think to check how does the scaffold stay up, which was dead weight with the cables. That was how they didn't even tie it to anything. And as we were going down the Chrysler building, which has gargoyles, when you see it at the very top, there are these gargoyles which stick out. He said, when we get to the gargoyles, kick hard and crank as fast as you can so we can get around them. So we did that, and I was looking down at the sidewalk because we went at quite a steep angle. As we swung back in, he said, brace yourself with your legs so we don't hit the building. I was really hooked on it by then. Not long after that, when he was working on the Roosevelt Island Tramway, a cable car route that connects East River to New York's Upper East Side, an accident occurred. This is the first time I experienced a failure. 
while we were on the island, the contractor inadvertently sent the cable car into a crane which went through the car on the Manhattan side. And we got the word and we all went over as fast as we could. And I started taking lots of pictures of the failure because I just thought it was neat. I had no concept of a legal issue. And the contractor looked at me and he said, if you take one more photo, I'm going to take that camera and wrap it around your neck. He was hooked. And the technology becoming available to engineers in the late 1970s was beginning to deliver new methods of understanding structural failures. Finite element analysis had not made it to engineering offices yet, but there were timeshares where you could buy time on a mainframe, which at the time the big one was the Cray machine. And we had a project at MIT with the Kresge Auditorium. It was a simple task. How do you take the lead shingles off a conical uh, partial sphere in such a way that you don't result in buckling the sphere from uneven loading? The auditorium, built in the 1950s, has a striking profile. Its curved roof is supported on three long arches, arranged in a triangle, with just the three corner points of the structure touching the foundations. The lead roof shingles needed to be replaced, but doing so would change the loading of the roof on the foundations. Water had gotten through the shingles, had percolated down to one of the three abutments, which supported this structure. Uh, it was only a, a three-point foundation. It didn't have four supports, so it was non-redundant. And in the process of the water percolating through the concrete over years, it had deteriorated it. As the demolition contractors worked conscientiously to remove the damaged concrete, they were also taking out good concrete. This was causing the structure to settle and threatened damage or failure. Jim and his colleagues could identify the root causes. I was doing that finite element analysis because at college I was taught how to do it. Nobody else knew um, it was too new. We were using a brand new program called ANSYS. And I learned a lot about doing the analysis, about doing time increments, about looking at material properties. It was pretty much a forensic exercise to try to determine what is really happening it has nothing to do with codes or standards. He spent a few years after this working in the UK before returning to the US. It was here that he became involved in his first complex investigation. This was not litigation over a fatal accident. It was much more humdrum than that. A local high school had been condemned and multiple parties were in dispute over whether the structure should be demolished and who was at fault. My client was the attorney who was hired by the insurance company who represented the lightweight concrete installer because the lightweight concrete was the insulation and the base for the roofing material. Um, the roofer was also pulled in, the steel joist people were pulled in. There's a, a huge number of experts. I don't remember, it was over a dozen easily, different interests involved. And although I was there for the lightweight concrete, I had to learn about the roofing because you can't get a problem with the concrete until the water gets through the roofing. There was an issue with condemning the building, which was a damages thing. Is this overblown? Even if the concrete's no good, does that result in a need to condemn the building? 
And what actually um, was the problem was that the brick masonry, which was unrelated to the concrete, the roofing or the steel structure, had poor flashing and the water had gotten through at the penetrations of the brick masonry, which then got into the lightweight concrete, which then caught softening and some deterioration. There are often multiple causes to any legal dispute, let alone to a failure that causes fatalities injuries, or major damage. A forensic engineer cannot enter an investigation considering just one factor, nor can they just consider if a building is built to code. Planning codes and building regulations aim to make structures safe by introducing safety factors for each of their components and for each of the techniques used in their construction. A forensic engineer may be called in to resolve a dispute over whether, for example, an engineer or contractor has delivered the work specified. Here, comparison with the building codes may help. But in an investigation into a failure, departing from the code does not explain what has happened. Building codes and standards have built-in safety factors, load factors. They're meant to take account of unknowns, material problems, construction problems, design errors. They're all there. and. It should be assumed, and I've never found a single structure that didn't have a problem associated with it. And that's what those factors are for. They're to allow things to be safely constructed, safely inhabited and used, even though it wasn't a perfect construction. So you always have less than you expected to have in almost all structures. You know, it, it's never perfectly meeting the building code but the building code is written to allow for it not to meet that. When something fails, you've removed all those safety factors of whatever it was that failed. And you've gotten down now to a factor of safety, which is just a fraction less than one. 1.001 is a safe structure. 0.9999 is a collapse. And it's important to know what was that last thing? What, what were all those factors which add up or lack of factors, to the ultimate failure. In 2008, two tower crane accidents happened in New York within months of each other. Jim's investigation of the collapse, which he conducted with his then-employer Arab, under commission from the New York City Department of Buildings, gave him a chance to look at how multiple failures can contribute to the overall safety factor of a structure falling below one. In his discussion of the collapse, Jim is keen to stress that he is offering only a personal, but expert opinion. The full report is linked in this episode's show notes. This is all my opinion, my professional opinion, based on the work that I did. So I'm not, I don't want to state these are actual facts, but they're right. opinions based on the research and the analysis. The report is available online so someone can read it through themselves and form their own conclusions. The city is an unusually challenging environment for lifting. Some of the world's tallest buildings cover crowded Manhattan. To build skyscrapers, large concrete and steel prefabricated components are brought to site by road, lifted to the vertical and installed often in one movement. Huge buckets of concrete are lifted hundreds of meters into the air, fast, so that they can be poured before they set. To do this, contractors in the city and in others like Singapore and London, 
use an otherwise uncommon type of equipment, known as a climbing, luffing jib tower crane. On typical tower cranes, the jib extends out straight from the mast. A trolley runs underneath the jib. As the crane turns, or slews in the jargon, or the trolley moves back and forth, loads can be lifted over obstacles. On a luffer, the angle of the jib can be raised and lowered, with the hook rope passing over the jib end rather than hanging from a trolley. This allows it to reach out like a normal crane, but also to reach up above the cab. Rather than having to slew over neighbouring buildings, which, as well as increasing risk to third parties, can also require contractors in cities like London to pay rent for air rides, luffers can raise their jib as they slew, staying within the job site. On a tall building, tower cranes are not built in one go. Rather, they are built up in stages, or climbed in the jargon, and tied to the building as it is built, either internally to the lift shaft, or, as in this job, externally to the building structure. The ties used on an externally climbing crane are steel beams, attached to the building on one end, and to a metal collar around the crane mast. The second and most devastating accident involved a Favel Favco luffing jib tower crane, which was being raised, or climbed in the jargon, to a new position. To complete the work, the licensed master rigger on the job was overseeing the installation of a new collar. This was designed to be lifted in two pieces, tied with chains in position, and then attached. It was a self-climbing external luffing crane. And they were raising the crane, and in the process of raising, the uh, steel collar, which was around the crane, fell. And that severed the two collar connections lower down. So then the tower crane, rather than being supported at its foundation and two levels, they were putting in the third level, became supported only at the foundation. And that foundation was a pin, so it tipped over. It was already 19 stories high, so when it tipped over, the top portion of the crane flipped and went through, I think it was one or two city blocks later, went through the roof of a building. Seven people were killed, and many more were injured. Investigating the accident's root causes required an understanding of multiple specialisations. Some could be considered as part of engineering. Some were construction processes that touched on engineering principles and others were legal and commercial, contractual and organisational. That involved issues of rigging, which isn't quite engineering, meeting safety standards, the nature of materials such as polyester, which was very much material science, not engineering. There was the construction and design of the tower crane itself and how it was attached to the building which was under construction, which it was being used for to construct. That was engineering, construction means and methods. All of those figured into what we needed to look at. And honestly, the very first thing I looked at was to find out if there had been a local tremor in New York. Get the easy things out of the way. Tremor, weather, those could be easily checked. The weather was benign, there were no earthquakes. Those first checks of weather and tremors took about 10 minutes, Jim says. But then getting through the other issues, uh, there were so many different possible reasons for the tower crane to collapse. 
from the dunnage beam, which was sitting on an open vault and it rested on plywood. So you had steel to plywood to concrete over an open space. That was the foundation for the tower crane. That raised a lot of issues. The building was a newly poured concrete building where the tie beams, which held the tower crane to the building, were anchored to the concrete. So we had a question of the concrete, the anchors, the anchor plates. Those tie beams were welded to other components. So we had a question of welds. The tower crane itself was that it's on its own adequate. Um, was it being supported at the right locations? When a manufacturer designs a crane like this, they also design an erection plan. Parts are labeled, processes described. This was an older crane, like many of those used in major cities around the world. These are expensive pieces of kit, built to last, so that when maintained properly, they can be safely used for decades. Today, a buyer of a new tower crane will be able to access all of the manuals and instructions needed for its safe use online. Riggers and operators may even be able to practice the most complex jobs in virtual reality. But the erection instructions for this crane were only available in print. Without the full instructions, the riggers relied on their years of experience. And they had no way of knowing just how much they had been getting wrong. Pavel Favko um, had an erection drawing which showed very clearly that the four points uh, that had been attached were meant for raising the collar in two pieces. The eight points which were shown to hold the collar in place were not used. The, the, eight, the eight points had been used to raise the collar and, and they come up in halves. So by using the wrong ones to raise them, the photo of that half collar shows it at a very nearly a vertical angle. Whereas if it had been attached to the points shown by Favel Favco, it would have been at the center of gravity and it would have been nearly level. When they attached it to the tower, they used the lifting points, of which there were only four, because that was meant for the crane to pick it up, rather than the eight which had been supplied. So they used four instead of eight. The instructions were to use a chain, steel chain. They used polyester slings. They attached the slings around what is normally considered to be sharp edges, which is another way to reduce the strength of the slings. And the connection to the tower was at a V, where a diagonal bracing met the vertical leg, so it was crunched down into the corner. It took all of that to get over the factor of safety. It took all of those factors uh, before the factor of safety, which is built into the slings and use of the slings was reduced below one. It's a, you, know, you, you doubled the load, you put it over a sharp edge, you put it in the wrong place, and one of the slings was used and damaged prior to use. It wasn't a new sling. All the other, the manual and all the other drawings was, were given to the master rigger. He did not have the Favel Favco one drawing, so one sheet, giving the erection instructions. The investigation resulted in a criminal prosecution of the master rigger, who was acquitted on charges of manslaughter. A later license board hearing found him to be at fault. His testimony in that case 
illustrates a common cause Jim has seen and told graduate engineers about on several occasions. In court, he testified, and this is a classic question I ask when I'm giving seminars on forensic engineering. What do they always say when you ask, why did you do it this way? I want to give everyone a little moment to think. The answer is, we always do it this way. Usually that's correct. In this case, we, we being Arab, analyzed the slings, the situation. We did a dynamic nonlinear failure analysis, which has very nice little graphics with it, and found that even after we used half the number of slings in the wrong place with reduced strengths, we, could, we couldn't get the model to fail unless we had little other assumptions. So it was like a, a playing a game of Russian roulette. It would usually work, but the odds of it failing were a little too high for comfort. And in this case, they had probably done it this way all the time. It had never failed. They got unlucky on this one. The master riggers, co-workers, and the families of those who died were in court, and they all supported him. They did not blame him. They felt we always do it this way. He did it innocently. It might have been ignorantly, but it was innocent. It was, it was not deliberate malpractice. He simply didn't know. A lack of knowledge plagues the construction and engineering sector. When something goes wrong, or nearly goes wrong, as must have happened on many other tower crane climbing operations before this fatal collapse, the industry should learn. The Arup report was commissioned by the New York Department of Buildings and was released to the public, allowing the lifting industry to learn from its findings. But that is not always the case. There is actually a failure in the industry to disseminate the information on things that go wrong. There have been repeated attempts, um, I know by forensic engineers, to collate failure information into a searchable database. There's been very little success at it, uh, due to the volunteer nature of the activity, due to confidentiality, uh, to the difficulty of getting data, because that really would help society. And knowledge sharing should go further. The engineering and construction sector should also share what it learns from near misses. Another area that needs to be looked at much more, and I think could be taught to engineers, and certainly taught to managers is what is referred to often as near miss theory um, or the complacency problem where something wasn't quite right nothing went wrong so the next time you don't worry about it as much but there's no idea of knowing how close you were to a disaster the management system needs to encourage it it needs to reward people for reporting things they've done wrong which were near misses it's a learning it's a learning curve it's nobody does everything perfectly everybody makes errors but this does not happen instead forensic engineers and building pathologists only get called in when near misses turn in to actual failures and unfortunately um it's likely i don't even want to say my opinion it's likely that most people try to cover it up so nobody knows about the near miss they had. And nobody will know what the consequence might have been until there's a failure. 
and it, there was a consequence, and so somebody investigates it. A design engineer is generally an advocate for their client. They will do what they're told unless it violates life and safety issues. They'll advise the client that this is too costly, but if they're told to do it, they'll do it, even though it costs more. They'll advise a client this isn't most efficient, but if they're told to do it, then they will do it because they need to satisfy the client. They may tell the architect, are you kidding with this design? How are we going to build this? It's going to cost an enormous amount. And you can see many beautiful buildings out there that would fit that description. Yet the engineer will still do their best to satisfy the client. In forensic engineering, you are not an advocate. You are not trying to satisfy the client. Some engineers do think that that's what they're supposed to do. That's what, those are what used to be called the hired guns. They're paid for their opinion. I feel that I am paid and forensic engineers should always be paid for the facts to find out what really happened. To be able to give a fair account of the facts, not just what a client attorney wants to hear, takes experience as well as training. In terms of an approach for younger engineers, I know that there are some courses now in colleges, I've taught some of them, which introduce forensic engineering, but really you need to already be familiar with construction means and methods. You need to know how design works, what to do with design. It's a multi-dimensional field. One thing which I've learned over the years doing forensic engineering is that it's important not to focus solely on the problem. Building pathologists and forensic engineers cannot just look at whether a single potential cause was responsible for a collapse or for a failure to deliver work as specified. And they can't just use engineering knowledge. Most engineers should know crack patterns for concrete. Certain cracks relate to bending, shear, deflection, shrinkage, whole lot of different types of cracks, sizes, positions, whether they open up, open down, whether on the top or on the bottom. And that all tells a very big story in what's going wrong. But there are other patterns too, patterns of safety. Does everybody wear a harness? Or is only one person not wearing a harness? Are there reports? You look at the daily reports, the uh, toolbox talks at the start of the day. What is said every day? What happens? Are there toolbox talks? And all of that needs to be looked at, which is also why at the beginning I said, if someone wants to be become a forensic engineer, they need to become familiar with all these things before they start. All of this doesn't come out from university, and it doesn't come from working in a design office. It comes from exposure to many different areas. And as I said, although one could learn all this and become a forensic engineer on the job as a forensic engineer, it is grossly unfair to your client to the people who are suing or claiming damages on your client, because your ignorance will result in someone being wrongfully convicted, wrongfully assessed for damages, wrongfully losing their license. When a dispute or accident investigation is moving towards the courts, a different sort of maturity is needed. Clients and contractors shouldn't go into a dispute looking to litigate. Instead, they should be trying to find a way to resolve the dispute. What are their reasonable solutions? Are the solutions something they can live with? Are they going to accept what the solution is to avoid the litigation case? 
what I say often to potential clients, and I had the conversation yesterday, is that at all possible costs, avoid having to hire me, avoid having to get an attorney, avoid having any claim. It'll be faster, easier, less hassle. If you go through the claim process, it's, I'd say at least 90% certain you will never get what you wanted. You will get some of it, a lot of it will go to me, a lot of it will go to the attorney, and the settlement won't be what you were hoping for. Both sides are going to be disappointed. And it may be 10 years later. You don't even know if you'll be alive. But if they're all adults in the room, everyone should know we have a problem. Yeah, okay. I did most of it. They did a little bit of it. Let's just divide up the problem and solve it. They would get it done quickly. Almost all construction follows that route. They try to work it out. When they're adults in the room, everybody knows what the reasonable side is and what the non-reasonable side is. When you don't, and I, I realize this could be contentious, but I do think of it as adults in the room. Somebody's greedy or stupid. I think most of my work comes out of that. Agreeing to accept and share responsibility for a failure fairly can allow parties to a dispute resolution and save themselves from a lengthy and costly litigation. But that approach may also be the way to structure contracts so that accidents don't happen in the first place. Approaches like this are known as integrated project delivery, but Jim nicknames them the Kumbaya method. So a GC who's working on the low bidder method, that's another uh, favorite of mine. You know, why did this happen? It was low bidder. Because if you try to get the low bidder, it's going to be very hard to get the high quality. And if you want high quality with a low bidder, then you can take your time scale out the window. You can either get your time, your money, or your quality, but not all three at once. So if you have someone working as a low bidder, they are concerned about their individual profit. And if their individual profit is not dependent on anybody else's profit, their motive is not in anybody else's interest kumbaya method where everybody shares profit, everybody has an equal hand in making sure this thing works because they will all lose or they will all gain based on the outcome. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was hosted by me, Tim Sheehan, and Johnny Dowling. Written and produced by Will North. Editing was by Tim Sheehan and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And our very own expert witness is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our guest, James Cohen. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, and also on LinkedIn.